0: Thanks for listening to Code Switch. Check out the NPR One app for your phone. You can listen to news and stories from your local station and find new shows and stories to make your commute less awful. Great hand-curated podcasts and stories are always ready when you are on NPR One. Find it on your app store, NPR One. What's good, y'all? This is Code Switch from NPR. I'm Gene Demby. And if you follow stories about how races lived in America, there's a list of names that you've undoubtedly become familiar with. Michael Brown, Sandra Bland, Freddie Gray, Eric Garner, Tamir Rice, Trayvon Martin. Those are the names of black folks who ended up dead after some confrontation with a police officer or an armed stranger. And you also probably know the story of how police in Ferguson were targeting the black folks there for tickets and citations, or you've heard the story of how folks in the struggling, mostly black town of Flint, Michigan, saw their water turn toxic. And there have been hashtags and discussions and protests, and sometimes violence. Increasingly, we've seen some official inquiries, if not prosecutions, in the aftermath of this news. But let's back up a little bit. What happens before There's so much more to these stories than what makes the headlines. And the circumstances that led to those ultimate tragedies are decades in the making. And that's the thrust of a new book by the Morehouse University professor Mark Lamont Hill. That book is called Nobody, Casualties of America's War on the Vulnerable, From Ferguson to Flint and Beyond. And the argument that Mark is making in this book is that a large number of Americans have been walled off from the protections that are supposed to come with Americanness. And so recently I sat down with him to talk about it. Welcome to Co-Switch, Mark.
1: Man, it is so good to be here, brother. I'm excited.
0: I'm excited to to talk to you about this book, which is called Nobody. Um, You start the book by describing Ferguson as this inflection point, a moment that people will still be studying in the future, still be talking about. Can you explain why you think that it is? Because I think every generation has a moment
1: uh, where that generation says, we've had enough. And where their frustrations at the social burdens and pressures uh, that they're wrestling with bubble over and mobilize them into a movement. You know, August 28th, 1955 was the day that Emmett Till was killed. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't the first lynching. It wasn't the first black boy that had been beaten or dragged. It wasn't the first social crisis that we'd seen in the city of, of Chicago or in Mississippi, right? You know, but what happened is when that boy was killed and Mamie Till had the open casket funeral and the whole world could see the kind of material effect of state violence, the material effect of state-sponsored violence, and the material effects of white supremacy and the consequences of it, suddenly people were mobilized. Well, something similar happened on August ninth, 2014, when Mike Brown is laying on the ground and he's in Canfield Green, and, and suddenly, you know, he's on his way home, and instead of making it home, he's killed by Darren Wilson. Mm-hmm. And he lays out there for four and a half hours, much like a... 20th century lynching his body was laid out as a spectacle for an entire town to see little boys little girls elders who knew him and helped raise him all of them had to stand there and watch that boy lay out there with without even a sheet over his body for a couple of hours and unlike a, a lynching of the 20th century where the town sees it or the neighborhood sees it now suddenly we have an entire world seeing it because youtube instagram facebook twitter they all picked up this killing and since the death of Mike Brown, we have mobilized against the deaths of Eric Garner and Tamir Rice and Renisha McBride and Rakia Boyd. And, uh, you know, we've gone down the list. Sure. Eric Garner, you know, Walter Scott and, and Freddie Gray and, and, and Sandra Bland. And we've done it because we've had a sense of momentum. And that momentum was birthed uh, on August 9, 2014. And that's why the book is partially dedicated to Mike Brown, because I said he died so that a new generation of
0: freedom fighters could live. Um, In a lot of ways, though, Michael Brown's death is kind of an unlikely case to have been the center of this, right, to have blown up the way it did. It wasn't captioned on camera the way that Eric Garner's was. Um, It took place, you know, far away from any real major media center. So why do you think Ferguson in particular, like, became the, the sort of cauldron in which this all sort of exploded?
1: Well, I think part of it is just it it was an overflow of energy and emotion and frustration from the death of Trayvon Martin that went unavenged, that went without any sort of justice attached to it. So these profound frustrations uh, that people had sort of bubbled over into Mike Brown. So we didn't see the killing on tape, Mm -hmm. but we saw the consequence of the killing on tape. And we and we had witnesses who were at the time declaring that he was killed with his hands up. And so that sparked a certain sense of outrage. Now, the more investigation we do, the more research we do, the more we, you know, we read the D- DOJ's investigation, and the more conversations I had with people on the ground, it's hard to confirm uh, that his hands were up or that right. he was running uh, away. I would argue that that's probably not true. But the, nevertheless...
0: The DOJ report actually says that right. that
1: didn't happen. It? Exactly. But but I also uh, want to, you know, spotlight that while Mike Brown isn't the normal victim, in some sense, that is a marker of progress. Because too often in history, our protests have been anchored to a kind of respectability politics that says that the victim has to be perfect, right? Mm -hmm. We didn't let Claudette Colvin sit down on the bus. She was the initial choice for the bus boycotts. And they said, oh, well, she's a teenager. She's unmarried. She won't fit. She's dark-skinned. You know, right. So we're going to go with Rosa Parks instead because she's a better face of the movement. You know, when Trayvon Martin was killed, the first thing we did, we found pictures of him. And we put them up, you know, of him on a horse, and like it's yeah. cool. I'm I'm happy he was you know was a good kid, uh, but you shouldn't have to be a good kid to not die. You shouldn't have to you know be uh, comporting yourself in a way that you know responds perfectly to the, the interests of mainstream white or black America in order to not uh, be killed in the streets like an animal. And so, for me, Mike Brown in many ways was the perfect victim because it wasn't the perfect case. It wasn't the perfect kid. Ah, uh, Mike Brown wasn't a, a particularly great student, you know, at Normandy School District. He went to a bad school district, you know. Right. Mike Brown did push somebody in a store for a pack of cigarettes on the way out. But again, that's not a capital crime. You shouldn't be executed for pushing somebody or stealing a pack of cigars or rolling your blunts. So, you know, the fact that he became the face in the poster boy, to me, signals a turn in our collective politics that says that we're no longer only going to advocate for people who are perfect. We're saying everybody's life has value. Everybody deserves to be protected. And so Black Lives Matter movement means all black lives matter, not just certain ones.
0: All right, y'all, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to dive deep into a radical idea that Mark has for addressing the inequalities in our criminal justice system, abolishing prisons outright. And if you're wondering how that would work, me too. Stay with us. I'm Gene Demby. You're listening to Code Switch.
1: Support for Code Switch and the following message come from POV, producers of the documentary All the Difference, which follows the inspiring five-year journey of two African-American teens growing up on Chicago's South Side, as family, teachers, and mentors help them defy the odds in the teens' quest to graduate from college. Tune in Monday, September 12th at 10 p.m. to the PBS series POV to watch all the difference. Check your local listings. POV is part of the American Graduate Initiative, made possible by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
0: Hey, it's Guy Raz here from the TED Radio Hour, and I'm really excited to tell you about another podcast I'm hosting. It's called How I Built This, and it's a show about the most amazing innovators and entrepreneurs and the stories behind the companies and movements they built. The show launches on September 12th. You can find it at npr.org slash podcasts on iTunes or on the NPR One app. Okay, y'all, welcome back. You're listening to Code Switch. I'm Gene Demby. So we just left off with Mark Lamont Hill. And during this conversation that we were having about his book, we sort of shifted to this really unconventional idea that he's talked about before that I was really, really curious about. I believe in
1: the elimination of the prison as our primary mechanism of punishment uh, in this world. I, 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 I dare to believe in the possibility of a world without prisons. And you said the perfect thing. You said it's hard for me to wrap my mind around this idea. And I think that part of what makes certain things uh, seem permanent is that we can't imagine a world without them, right? It is hard for people to imagine a world without prison because our conception of justice is linked to some conception of punishment. And our conception of punishment in the United States is too often linked to a conception of confinement. In Nobody in Chapter 5, Cage, I talk about the kind of birth of the prison and the penitentiary and this notion sure. of penitence out of the That's Quaker tradition. Absolutely. It's Eastern the state. States of the century. Yeah, yep. exactly. Yep. And so we can talk about the kind of birth of the modern prison as a kind of quintessentially American thing. And what I'm saying is that there are other ways to imagine punishment. There are other ways to imagine justice.
0: Uh, are there other ways to imagine punishment around nonviolent offenses and any number of offenses that are felonies that don't have victims, right? But what about, you know, rape? What about murder? Like,
1: yeah, I mean, that's bit. always the question, right? When I, when I, when I talk about—let me begin by saying no. You know, we have to be able to—we have to ask ourselves, one, does the drug war make sense? We've spent billions of dollars, if not a trillion dollars since the 60s, and drugs are cheaper, easier to get, and stronger than ever,
0: if it's I don't a war, think you would. I, I, I don't think you would find. Well, I, you would. I mean, you would. I definitely find pushback on people who would argue that you know drug offenders should be in prison. But I think you would find far fewer people who would make that argument uh, that they should remain in prison than you would find people who the would serial argue killer, that the, that, right? Or no. or even just you know even the dude who's not a serial killer, but the dude who like you know who shot his wife or you know who or shot I, I some, got I you. Know.
1: And I'm getting there. I just I just want to be clear about you know the fact that my abolitionist dream is anchored first in the fact that. There's a, a vast over-incarceration of, of people. And so, you know, for me, the first thing we have to think about is how we can decarcerate. Decarceration. So decarcer- can you explain decarceration? Yeah, decarceration decarcer- is, is, is literally the opposite of incarceration, right? Let's get folk out of prison. What does that look like? It looks like suspended sentences. It looks like getting rid of this wicked bail system. we got to be able to get people out of prison. So decarceration, uh, uh, supervised, release. Um, giving people drug treatment instead of, uh, instead of sentences, uh, playing restitution, community service. These are all ways that we can get a sense of justice when somebody steals your TV, you know what I mean? Or somebody graffitis the wall or whatever, then something else. The the other thing we have to do is excarcerate, right? Which is to find ways to decriminalize activities and to make sure that certain activities are no longer carceral problems. But then Everybody was listening to me saying, yeah, Mark, but what about my cousin? I, th- this this dude is crazy. <laughs> he need to be in prison. You know what I mean? I grew up with this dude in the hood. He put people in his trunk. You know what I mean? Like, there are people who are crazy. There are people who kill people. There are people who, who cut people's heads off. There are people who eat people. Like, Mark, you, 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 what you going to give him, community service? I, I, I get I get your point. Um, and I think it's a fair point. I think that represents a very small number of people, though.
0: Uh, not but, even serial killers, though. I mean, I'm not talking about serial killers. I'm talking about people who, you know... Yeah, you're committed. talking
1: about just commu- like disputes on the street.
0: I'm talking about, yeah. Like, yeah, you, you somebody know, just
1: shoots somebody up. Somebody do a drive-by. Right, somebody fighting or, over drugs. Or, absolutely. Again, I would argue those numbers are radically reduced. If, if drugs aren't illegal, then people aren't shooting themselves over it in the same... Shooting each other over it in the same way because it's a different market. But then I say, yes, there are people who are violent. And we have to find ways to deal with that. Yes, there are people who molest, who abuse, who rape, who you know, who do the, the most heinous uh, crimes. I would argue that it's impossible for me to imagine, anyway, uh, anyone doing that who didn't have a mental health problem. So for me, when I think about mm. the serial killer, the rapist, etc., I think about it as much as a mental health problem as I do as a criminal problem.
0: I'm trying to think of... Whether or not there is a social value or social there's some social merit to the idea that um certain people should be removed from a community um yeah, and, and, and have the stigma of their removal follow them or at least be with them for the long for the for the, yeah, uh, but the terms of their incarceration. Well,
1: well historically the problem is and in recent times also, like the people we've stigmatized it's largely based on race and class not based on the not based on the crime itself
0: certainly certainly i'm not yeah no, i know you're no not saying there, that i'm saying but i'm, saying, no but, but I'm yeah. saying
1: so what we end up doing is creating a criminal class more than anything else so so that when you hear the word crackhead right a certain thing pops in your head right a social dreg someone who doesn't belong in the streets someone sure. who should be removed from society when i when you hear cokehead you hear wealthy white guy. You hear corporate board member. You hear somebody who might be making a bad health choice, but doesn't belong outside of society.
0: I'm not arguing that the stigmatization is is should be applied. And I'm saying if can you if they can be applied to certain kinds of uh, violent criminal offenses and not necessarily. So you're
1: to, saying like rape rape should be stigmatized?
0: Uh, yeah. I mean, is it, it not be, already I right? Mean, but hmm.
1: it's, I, and I don't think it's stigmatized because if you go to jail for it. I think no, we, no, no,
0: no. Of course, it's not... I mean, obviously, because people rape all the time and they don't go to jail, right? I mean, and, and actually that's part of the problem, right? Is that, like, people don't... I mean, the stigma of rape is sort of... Because for a bunch of reasons, it's not, like, a thing that's contained, right? It is not a thing that is, like... Um, and it doesn't... It tends not to fall on the rapist, right? It tends to fall on the people who are rape survivors. But, like, I'm I'm talking about, like, if someone is has shot and shot somebody, right? Like, why... And I didn't want to go to another prison abolition rabbit hole. I just, I'm just, I'm just.
1: No, but it's a fascinating I, question. So you're saying somebody shoots somebody? Shouldn't there be so, so much collective shame attached to shooting people and stigma attached to shooting people that they go to jail? It's it's, it's like saying, all right, we know people are still going to shoot people, but if we have jail, then people will know that we really don't like it. Right. What end does I'm, that serve? Right. If it doesn't stop people from shooting people, and there's no internal dispute about whether we whether we are in favor of shooting people or not then to me... So what, what do you do with the shooter? You find ways to make him not a shooter anymore. I'm talking about a restorative justice model. That's the point. We have to think outside of the prison. When I say think outside of the prison, I don't just mean thinking about opening the gates to Graterford and, and, and Rikers and letting everybody out. I'm saying we have to get outside of the logic of the prison. I'm saying, wait a minute. The goal should be to... The person who got shot should be made whole. And the person who's a shooter should be engaged in such a way... That, that they make the person whole, but also so that they don't shoot anybody else anymore and I'm saying how do we do that is it if if I operate from the assumption that people no one is disposable right that you can't just throw people away right and that no one is beyond redemption some folk need a whole lot more work but <laughs> but nobody's beyond redemption if we're operating from that perspective, then that's where treatment comes in that's where mental health. Uh, engagement comes in. That's where, uh, and, and, and sometimes that mental health support might be secured confinement. Let me be clear about that. I'm not saying that, like, I can give you outpatient, you know, we validate your parking every day and you're a serial killer and you just come in once a week to get your, your checkup. No, I'm saying some people need secured confinement. And you might say, I'm imagining, well, if it's secured confinement and it's for a crime, then that's just jail by another name. I would argue it is not. One, because it, it it's different in scale. One, it's different in scope. It's different in intention. It's different in the type of treatment you get. And it's not framed as as the end, right? Like, you, you go to jail, you stay there, either till you die or till you run out your sentence. No, here the end game is, is healing and restoration. Um, and we could collectively decide what that looks like and if there's a, a minimum amount of time you need, but that's still not jail. And even if it were jail, even if I conceded at that point, which I would not, we have still, by this model, reduced the amount of people in, quote-unquote, prison to something far more manageable. And that, to me, is what abolition is about. It's about not just imagining a world without prison, but making actionable steps that get us there.
0: So if you could wave a magic wand would you and take the racial and class bias out of criminal justice system, would you still feel we would need to make these changes or do you think that uh, these, the, the racial bias sort of just underlines the, uh, the, the, the the inhumanity of these things?
1: The problem with the question is that is that it's a, it's a hypothetical that's also counterfactual, right? The the prison itself is born out of the exploitation of labor and the white supremacist uh, kind of impulses that undergird it are inseparable from the institution itself. So it's like saying if you could take capitalism out of slavery, well, you can't, right? If I could take racism out of slavery, would I be okay with it? Well, I can't. Um, I might have a moral critique of it outside of that, but I also can't separate it from those things. I'm saying that the prison itself is an outgrowth of a state that defends class at all costs. Mm -hmm. Right. In the same way that slavery was inseparable from the American democratic experiment as, as an exploitative force and as a form of labor exploitation, as Du Bois talks about in black reconstruction in the same way, the prison is just a, is just a a more politically correct, warmer and fuzzier version of that slave system. So no, I, I, if I waved a magic wand and got rid of racism and, and got rid of, a class defending state, then slavery would never have happened and the mass incarceration system would have never happened and the convict lease system would have never happened and black codes would have never happened and slave mm. codes would have never happened. And so I, I can't separate those things. I understand your fundamental question, which is um uh, if if the system was fair, would I be okay with prison? And I'm saying if the system were fair, there would be no prison.
0: Hmm. To these huge issues that we're talking about here, in, in both in this conversation and in uh, "Nobody," your book.
1: Yes, um, the book "Nobody: <laughs> Casualties of America's War on the Vulnerable" from Ferguson to Flint and beyond. How many times have you had to say that? About seventy-five thousand.
0: Oh my gosh! Um, these big, these big questions you're raising here—reexamining uh, uh, capitalism, um, criminal justice, dismantling racism in you know housing and and and. Uh, if you're not a governor or a judge or even a, polit- not you, the hypothetical you, yeah, yeah, uh, not a judge or a governor or a political pundit or you know elected official, like where where do you start? Where does a private citizen start?
1: Well, they start by reading Nobody, Casualties (laughs) of America's War on the Vulnerable, from Ferguson to Flint and beyond. Because I think you do get a a history lesson here. I think you get a contemporary analysis here. I think you get a sense of how we got where we are. I do think that's
0: significant. I mean, I'm curious about, about, since you said that, like who you think the audience is for this book. I mean, because it does seem like increasingly, one of the things that that jumped out to me immediately when I was reading this was like increasingly how much more of this stuff um, is becoming part of um, the lexicon of I mean, everyday like folk.
1: And, and this is for a book for everyday citizens. You know, I've written academic books before. I've written to the 12 professors in my field who care about what I'm doing. or I've written stu- books that maybe my grad students or my undergrads would read, but this is a book for everyday people. Um, The language is accessible. The histories are accessible. I hope uh, the narrative is somewhat compelling to somebody, But more importantly, I'm I'm making a set of arguments that everyday people need to understand about how America engages the vulnerable. It's not this isn't a book about race, although race is all through it. This is not this is not a book about class, although I make the case, you know, about kind of class is setting the material conditions for everything else in this text. And I think all Americans should read it, but I think all Americans can read it. And I I think that the book will help us make sense of the world. But it doesn't leave you in in a with a blue note. It doesn't leave you uh feeling like there's nowhere to go so that was actually a question i wanted to ask
0: you remember the um, book
1: ends with a chapter called somebody right, right and and that's important because while we have been rendered nobody by the state while there is tremendous doom and gloom as i mentioned when i talked about the prison abolitionist thing you know there's never been a moment where the vulnerable haven't been considered nobody but there's also never been a moment where we've never where, where we've where we didn't assert our somebodyness, where we didn't assert our humanity, where we didn't resist, where we didn't fight, where we didn't struggle, and where we didn't ultimately win. Prison system's not going to end itself, but we can end it. State violence isn't going to end itself, but we can end it. Labor exploitation isn't going to end itself, but we can end it. And, and and at the end of the book, I talk about somebodyness and I talk about since August ninth, 2014, the rise of resistance groups, the expansion of student-led led groups, watching the church, you know, That's what life is about. That's what struggle is about. And I think that when we leave here and when we leave
0: this, my book, when you finish that last page of the book, you should leave with a sense of hope. Mark Lamont Hill is the author of Nobody, Casualties of America's War on the Vulnerable, from Ferguson to Flint and beyond. Thank you so much for rocking with us, man. I appreciate you. Uh, It's my pleasure, bro. All right, that's where we're going to leave it today. This is Code Switch from NPR. Our producers this week were Allison McAdam and Rond Abdel Fattah with original music by Ramtin Louie. Our editors are Alicia Montgomery and Keith Woods. Thanks to the rest of the Code Switch fam, my co-host Shereen Marisol-Moraji, Karen Grisby-Bates, Cat Chow, Adrian Florido, our regular producer Walter Ray Watson, and our news assistant Leah Danella. Follow us online and on air. Follow us on Twitter at NPR Code Switch. And we want to hear from you. Our email is codeswitch at npr.org. Subscribe to the podcast wherever fine podcasts can be found or streamed. I'm Gene Demby. We're back next week. Be easy.